everyone to the Streaming Water Podcast. We are back for another episode. And on this episode, we are glad to have Dr. Anna Marotra here. And Anna's with the Wastewater Surveillance Program at WEF, which I'll let her describe a little bit more in depth as we go through the episode. But thanks for being here, Anna. Oh, thanks for having me, Blair. It's it's great to be with you today. Yeah, well, it's great to uh, it's great to have this topic. We've done a few episodes on pieces of of COVID monitoring, but I think you uh, can bring you can bring a lot as far as the big picture and and the connection to public health and WEF and the national national agencies. So that'll be great. But I guess first off, can you just uh, introduce yourself? Tell us your background, how you got in this business, who you are, and uh, who you want to become. Okay. I hadn't thought about that last part. So I'll focus on the earlier parts of the question. Um, So yeah, I've been working in water, mostly in wastewater since the last century, the early, like mid 1990s. Um, And I've done a lot of different things in the wastewater fields, research, teaching, consulting. Um, My longest gig was with CDM Smith as a process engineer. So I worked there for 12 years designing wastewater treatment processes for municipal and industrial clients. And I was lucky enough to work in the Boston slash Cambridge offices of Stadium Smith in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in Brisbane, Australia, and Truckee, California. So I really had a fun, a lot of fun working there. But back in 2020, uh, when I was still at CDM Smith, um, I was able to get the firm involved in some wastewater surveillance programs. Um, and so when this opportunity to work at WEF came across my you know, desk and this opportunity involved working 100% on wastewater surveillance, I jumped at it. So that's where I've been. As you mentioned, I'm at WEF since uh, summer 2021. And that's what I do, wastewater surveillance. <laughs> oh, which, uh, do you have a favorite out of all those hats you've worn, research, teaching, consulting, uh, or this gig, do you have a do you have a favorite among them, or do you like the variety? Yeah, I like the variety. I would say um, I'm I think I like the teaching um, the the most, and I'm really fortunate that in my current role, we do get to do a lot of teaching, training, um, kind of information, knowledge transfer, sorts of activities. So I do think I like those the best. Although I am, I, I do love bio and modeling. So you know, I kind of like it all. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Who doesn't love bioin? Oh, I know. Who doesn't, right? It's your favorite thing to do, right? <laughs> what about outside of work, Anna? Do you, uh, how do you spend your time on the weekends or when you're not uh, looking at, at COVID and wastewater or, or talking about that? Um, yeah. So I would say my number one hobby outside of work is being a mom and supporting my kids, attending sporting events and helping them grow up to be good citizens. Um, I have varying degrees of success with that. So <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Um, other than that, yeah, I love digging in the dirt, getting in my garden um, and going for walks in the woods. So pretty simple stuff. Cool. I also have varying degrees of success raising children. <laughs> so you're not alone there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, now it's time for the interesting question. I don't know if we've had this one before. It kind of sounds familiar, but uh, we haven't had it with you on. So if you could get rid of any genre of music, what uh, what genre would it be? What kind of music comes on the radio and you turn the radio off? Okay, so Blair, you gave me a heads up about this question. And I thought long and hard about this. And I looked at all the Spotify genre, you know, categories. And um, 
I kind of like them all. You know, I like, I like sort of energetic music, like West African, Latin music. I love funk. I love blues. I love ska, classic rock. I even like country and gospel. So if, and I like classical, if you had to force me to get rid of a musical genre, this is going to be so unpopular, but I would say jazz because I just don't get it. I don't understand jazz. So that's my answer. I'm really sorry to all the jazz lovers out there. Maybe I just need to take a class on jazz. Maybe I just need an education. Uh, yeah, that's probably that's my problem. They're all saying now. They're like, you just don't get it. You're just, I don't get it. Oh, yeah. 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 All right. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll accept jazz. And hopefully none of our uh, jazz fans are too offended because it is. Yeah. I was trying to think of it myself. And I was like, I kind of like them all in the right circumstance. But some, you know. If I'm not in the mood for country and country comes on, it'll drive you crazy. You know, it's it's got to be the right time, the right place, I think. But good. Uh, all right. Well, let's dig into these questions a little bit on the topic at hand, which is is wastewater surveillance. And I wanted to get your definition. I've heard of a lot of definitions of wastewater surveillance, but uh, give us your definition of what you think that means and why you think it, it matters. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's so a wastewater surveillance, which also goes by other names like wastewater-based epidemiology or uh, wastewater monitoring for public health, but it really kind of all means the same thing. Um, so we define it at WEF as the systematic sampling and analysis of untreated wastewater and interpretation and use of that wastewater data to better understand community health. So this is about untreated wastewater community level tracking of diseases. And we really focus on infectious diseases at WAF. You know, there are other applications of this whole field. And then you ask kind of um, why it matters. But before I get to that, I think one thing that's really important to emphasize is this is not new. We have, I know you've talked about it a lot. You've talked about it before on this podcast. You and I talked about it on a different podcast. We've been talking about it a lot in the past three years, right, with COVID. But this is not something that's new. There were researchers looking for salmonella typhi and polio virus in sewage of big cities back in the 1920s and 1930s. So that's a really important thing to keep in mind. It's just gotten really popular during COVID. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that it is just one of many types of what's called public health surveillance. And um, you know, public health surveillance is all about tracking um you know it's it's similar to wastewater surveillance and then the idea is to track health related data and community health and to use that data to sort of inform resource allocation of public health but um wastewater surveillance is just another example of what we can do in terms of public health surveillance so then you ask why does it matter um and we've just seen during covid right that this has gotten to be so popular in the people love talking about sewage in in the media, right? So um, I think that's wonderful because I think it's doing a real service for our uh, wastewater profession. But the reason it's so popular and we're still talking about it is that it has three you know features that make it sort of unique in the public health surveillance world. First, it captures all infections independent of healthcare seeking behavior. So whether you're going and getting tested or not, you're still using the bathroom. So wastewater surveillance will count you if you're infected with something. Second, it gives community level aggregated information. So it protects individual privacy, which is a really nice feature. 
And third, it can provide a leading indicator. So it can give more timely data than things like case counts or hospitalizations or certainly deaths for COVID, but also for other things. So, and that's the other thing I want to emphasize is, yeah, we're talking about COVID, right? And we now have this very robust national wastewater surveillance system in the U.S., where we're still looking for COVID, SARS-CoV-2 and wastewater, over 1,200 sites participating in that. But we are primed and ready to move beyond COVID and look at a whole bunch of other things in wastewater, things for which wastewater definitely gives us sort of lead, uh, like a leading indicator or heads up uh, where the community's headed with, with infection. So I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, it does. It gets me... Uh... It gets me thinking, too. I like your take on, you know, I think part of it is when I think about that whole word surveillance, it means something different to to public health or this effort than what people think about. As you hear surveillance and you think of the SWAT van outside your, your, you know, the neighborhood or you think of military, you know, looking at, you know, looking for weapons, you know, whatever it is. Usually surveillance has a negative kind of spy connotation and i like your take of this actually protects protects your your identity you know because it's a big pool rather than one person going into a hospital filling out all the forms so yeah that's i like i hadn't really thought of that before yeah and um and so yes words matter right and surveillance like you said does make you think of things like traffic cameras and tracking your internet searches but public health surveillance is a field that's been around for a long time. And so it this whole kind of tension over the use of the word, ter, you know, the term surveillance um, is a little bit of a microcosm of the whole issue with this, this tool, which is you have to bring health departments, so public health folks, epidemiologists, biostatisticians, laboratorians, together with wastewater people, um, and they speak a different language. Right. Uh, and so that's been one of the challenges with getting this whole field up and running is understanding how to get those two groups kind of talking to each other and working with each other and understanding what motivates each of those groups because it's different. Right. So anyway. Yeah, I think uh, I can see that because just working in the wastewater. I mean, it must be like that in every profession. We get pigeonholed into your profession. You talk your words with your people and you go outside there and and you got to learn what what other people know and don't know and the words and, you know, ideas that they have. But cool. Well, can you tell us a little bit about your job in particular at WEF and the whole uh, I've heard of this news. What what is news and what is uh, just tell us a little bit about the, the position at WEF there that you have. Your thing. So, um, you know, as you know, WEF is a is a membership organization uh, focused on technical and, and educational activities. Um, and so back in um, 2020, um, we um, secured a cooperative agreement with the CDC um, so that they're supporting our efforts to, um, in turn, support the wastewater stakeholder group and wastewater surveillance program. So what that means is that we have a whole bunch of activities designed to kind of get information to wastewater utilities, connect wastewater utilities with each other, with their health departments, um, and sort of advance the our understanding of really how wastewater utilities can optimally participate in these programs. So these are things like 
you know, workshops, trainings. We do pilot studies on rapid testing technologies. We run a, an annual wastewater disease surveillance summit. We run two communities of practice. You've been very involved in one of those, the utilities community of practice for news specifically. We also run a community practice bringing uh, folks together who are doing wastewater surveillance in correctional facility settings. All sorts of interesting questions come up, right, when you're looking, testing wastewater in prisons and jails. So it's a, a wide variety of activities. But again, our role is really to support and advocate for the wastewater stakeholder group. So then you asked about what news is. Um, news is a, a public health surveillance system established by the CDC in September 2020 for COVID, for SARS-CoV-2 tracking. And it started out, you know, as a handful of states participating. And now we are at um, over 1,200 sites, as I mentioned, in all 50 states and a couple of territories sending data to the CDC. So CDC doesn't run the individual wastewater surveillance programs. They're not going out and collecting the samples and, and doing the analyses in their lab. What they do is provide funding to state health departments, some city health departments, territorial health entities. Then those entities in turn run their own wastewater surveillance program. As you know, you have a very robust wastewater surveillance program in the state of Colorado. That's one example of many sort of programs run by a state health department. So CDC funds those. They also collect all the data back and share it and do analytics on the, the wastewater data, share that back out with health departments so that health departments know how to take action on the wastewater data and CDC shares the, the data publicly on their dashboard. So that's what news is all about. Great. Um, yeah, I think those were all your questions. <laughs> yeah, I think you I think you summed it up nicely. Um, I want to dig in a little more. This kind of ties back to, you know, you said there's health people and there's wastewater people. And so I want to dig a little more into that and and not just, but how do you bridge gaps between those two groups or, or you know, maybe you could share. I know I was in a workshop that you led at the EPA headquarters in Denver and there was, you know, public health uh, people along with the wastewater people. And so I was hoping you could share some some insights or, or some uh, ways you bridge that gap between you know, two different, totally different, uh, you know, professions having to, to work together? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, and, and, you know, there's not a one size fits all way. We try, we try different ways. Um, I think the first thing is to emphasize to both groups that at the end of the day, they are after the same thing. Both the wastewater and the public health sectors are all about protecting human health, right? Um it's just that they achieve those obje that objective differently, right? In the wastewater sector, it's all about maintaining operating facilities that meet permit limits with the permit limits, protecting human health, aquatic life. In, in public health, you know, in health departments, it's about doing public health surveillance and then making decisions about how, how to allocate resources to um, improve what other, whatever health status uh, whatever the health status of their community is. So emphasizing that their missions are very much aligned. That's number one. Number two, getting people together, right? Once you, I mean, isn't it true? Once you meet somebody in person and you understand a little bit about who they are, where they come from, who their kids are, what they like to do, right? You then feel sort of more motivated to work with that person or to understand where that person's coming from or to 
to, you know, regularly check in with them, right? So yes, we love in-person workshops. It's really hard, um, you know, to, to get everybody to participate in those. It's impossible. So in addition to in-person workshops, we do a lot of virtual things, a lot of, you know, meetings for our communities of practice. Um, our wastewater disease surveillance summit, you can attend virtually as well. And then whenever we're doing these in-person or virtual trainings, events, whatever, we try to provide as much opportunity as we can for interaction, you know, breakout groups, you know, simple things like that, right? Small group discussions, Zoom breakouts, whatever, so that you can say, oh, yeah, I've had a conversation with this person from my health department now. I understand kind of more about where they're where, where they're coming from. But yeah, it's a challenge. And of course, we're all so busy, right? Um, and for the entire utility sector, the wastewater sector, participation in these programs is voluntary, right? This is not required to meet your permit. And so um, I've just been so impressed with, you know, your dedication to it, your participation in it, but also all of your counterparts at all of the hundreds of utilities and, um, you know, more than a thousand treatment plans, right, that are participating. So it's clear that a lot of people care about that mission to protect human health. So again, connecting people on that, on that, um, that note seems to work. Yeah, great. Thanks. It is truly, uh, I like your connection, you know, the the wastewater, we see ourselves as public health people already, but the outside public doesn't always see that. When I talk to people about wastewater and you say, yeah, I'm protecting public health. They're like, what does that, what does wastewater have to do with public health? But then you say, well, how long would your city last? You know, would our city last if we didn't have wastewater being treated, you know, before they used to dump it out their windows into the streets and how, how'd that work out? So it's like, yeah. I think that connection is, is a good one. Yeah. And I would say, you know, if anybody asks that question, they just need to travel abroad and see places where, um, you know, robust sanitation infrastructure is not the norm. Um, and then it becomes very clear that, you know, we are very fortunate in this country that we have <clears throat> realized this incredible, you know, tool of regular, you know, uh, wastewater treatment activated sludge, right? That one of the most important inventions of the 20th century in terms of protecting human health. So, I think we're just kind of far removed from that. We expect that. We expect that we'll flush our toilet and the wastewater will disappear and we'll never have to think about it again. So. Yeah, I think you're right. All right, Anna. Well, I wanted to take a little break here and it's time for the uh, mid-show segment. And today on the mid-show segment, it doesn't have anything to do with COVID, but I thought it was interesting i saw an article this is from nbc5 by anna quillen uh and it's uh, fort worth is making progress on a water wheel project to clean the trinity river so uh fort worth follows baltimore's water wheel lead and i've heard about these i think i had on a previous episode a group of students was trying to design something to take trash out of the river but i didn't realize these were in play already but uh they are because it starts out on tuesday city council Get a big update on the project called the Trinity River Water Wheels Initiative. Uh, the water wheel is a floating technology that picks up trash, puts it on conveyor belts inside the craft, and then deposits it into a trash bin. It is powered sustainably, primarily by river currents. Uh, but if the hydropower is not sufficient, there's also a solar power backup. And uh, 
what Fort Worth is doing is following Baltimore, which I've never been to Baltimore or seen this. They have pictures in this article, which is cool, but they have a Mr. Trash Wheel. And uh, Mr. Trash Wheel, you got to see it. You got to Google it and find a picture because he's got googly eyes and everything. But uh, Baltimore says it's really important that the Inner Harbor stay clean and beautiful and not have floating trash. Floating trash is a problem, especially after rain events, which I think is is true everywhere. Uh, most of the trash we pick up comes after a rainstorm, and that used to be just and that used to just cover the harbor to the point where it looked like you could walk across the harbor on trash floating in water. We wanted to find a way to stop that. That was from their uh, harbor initiative director at the Waterfront Partnership there. So since 2014, the effort has grown into four trash wheels, one of which city leaders placed googly eyes on and named Mr. Trash Wheel, which is very creative. But uh, I guess he's pretty popular. It says in here, Mr. Trash Wheel is as famous as the city's baseball team and even has social media pages complete with memes, thousands of followers, and merch to help spread the word for a cleaner environment. So I guess you can buy a Mr. Trash Wheel uh, baseball cap or something. It says the four trash wheels in Baltimore have collected more than 2,300 tons of trash over the last nine years, including nearly 2 million plastic bottles, 13 million cigarette butts. I wouldn't be the one to want to count all those cigarette butts, but uh, and over 1.3 million foam, foam containers. So I guess these things are working. So I, I guess uh, for listeners, if you want to see Mr. Trash Wheel, Google, uh, Google Mr. Trash Wheel. It'll probably come up. I don't know what you'll get. Be careful. You're at your own risk there, but uh, it is pretty cool looking, and I guess it's working. So I have to say I did Google Mr. Trash Wheel and it's very cool looking with the googly eyes. So somebody drives this thing around. Is that what it is? I think they just park it there and kind of funnel ah, the I'm not sure. Got it. But yeah, the water like propels this water wheel, which makes the conveyor belt go, it looks like. I don't know. I that just is so cool. I'd like to get a get an up close tour of Mr. Trash Wheel. I love it. Yeah, there's some drone footage of Mr. Trash Wheel if you go to mrtrashwheel.com. Oh, cool. I'll check that yeah. out. I really need to go to Baltimore, though, and see it for myself. A tour. A tour of Mr. Trash Wheel. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's get back to the uh, get back to the topic. And uh, my next question kind of uh, is around the future. What do you think the future of this? You've talked a little bit about it already. But what, what do you see for the future next 5, 10, 20 years even of, of this technology or, or what uh, what you got going with the wastewater surveillance? Yeah, so in the next five years, um, I'm thinking about, I'll, I'll speak specifically to news, the national system and sort of what the, the plans are there. Um, and then I can also talk more generally. I don't know what's going to happen in 20 years. Come on, don't ask me to predict that. <laughs> but um, in the next five years, we will definitely see an expansion of news to other analytes besides SARS-CoV-2. News is also, you know, analyzing uh, or their programs are also submitting data for MPOX virus. So they've already expanded to, to another um, viral target, but we're going to see expansion to others. So these will include things like influenza A and B, respiratory syncytial virus, adeno, also known as RSV, adenovirus 4041, Shiga toxin producing E. coli. So this is a pathogenic E. coli that's um, usually associated with foodborne illness. Campylobacter, um, it's a cause of really um, awful gastroenteritis. Norovirus, 
Canada auris, which is a fungal infection, and then MPOX and SARS-CoV-2 will continue to be included in the list of new sort of pathogen targets. So those those are coming soon. The, the flu and the RSV are already being um, analyzed by many health departments around the U.S., and the other ones will be rolled out in the next you know, year or so. But it's not just the pathogen targets. News is also expanding to specific antibiotic resistance genes. So these include carbapenemases, extended spectrum beta-lactamases, colistin resistance genes, and vancomycin resistance genes. So all I know is that the things like colistin and vancomycin, those are really kind of um, high-powered antibiotics that we like to reserve for infections that are resistant to other kind of more run-of-the-mill antibiotics. So if you see those, re- those antibiotic resistance genes show up, um, then there's potentially some concern there that you've got an antibiotic resistant infection circulating in the community. Although the, there's a lot of work there to be done, uh, a lot of work to be done there and sort of connecting what you see in wastewater with the, the clinical significance of that. But that's a whole other conversation. So definitely in the next five years, expanding pathogen targets. I think we're also going to see more, um, uh, you know, establishment of more things like ethical frameworks. You know, news got off the ground really quickly, and it's really incredible how much progress they've made in three years. But there's still things to optimize, like equitable distribution of sampling locations in the U.S. You know, are we doing our best to equitably capture the the U.S. population? You know, things like protecting the privacy of the communities that are having wastewater surveillance being done so that I think there's some room there and I think we'll see some ethical frameworks come out. The other thing to, to keep an eye out for is the National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine. They convened a committee on community wastewater based infectious disease surveillance. They came out with their phase one report last January. They're going to be coming out with another report early in 2024. So I think a lot of information will come, interesting information will come out of that. Like I said, 20 years, I'm not going to speak to, but maybe in 10 years, we'll see sort of a move beyond the pathogens, only the pathogens. There's already a lot of work underway looking at high-risk substances. So that includes things like illicit drugs, pharmaceuticals, like fentanyl and and other opioid um, compounds. There's already been a lot of wastewater testing done for for those sorts of high-risk substances. Um, And there's still some ongoing. I think we'll probably see more communities doing that in the next 10 years. Yeah. Good. You don't have to worry about 20 because the robots are slated to take over in about 15 (laughs) Good. Let us know where it goes from there. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, if people, if listeners want to find more information about news or WEF or this topic in general, do you got any anywhere to point them uh, that they might go and look for? You've pointed them to the uh, Mr. Trash Wheel, but if they want specifics on, on mm-hmm. our topic, you got anywhere they can they can look it up? Yeah, that's that's the easiest question you asked me. So the one and only thing I would recommend is checking out our website on this whole topic, which is nwbe.org. So that's the stands for the Network for Wastewater-Based Epidemiology, nwbe.org. So our, uh, there are many different uh, resources, pages, podcast episodes, videos on that website. It's We designed it to be sort of a one-stop shop for utilities and health departments and the general public interested in this whole field. So that's what I, that's what I recommend. Great. Thanks.
Uh, okay, I think we're we're coming to an end, at least before the uh, end of show quiz. But this is one uh, you mentioned. I, I did a, a podcast with you, and so you threw this at me, so I'm throwing it back at you. If I showed up uh, in your town, you're in Boston, right, or around Boston? Yeah. What uh, or a guest? If it wasn't me, someone showed up an out of town guest. Where would you take them to uh, to show them the sights of, of your area? Okay, so I'm going to have to assume that you're visiting me in the summer or the fall because I'm going to make you walk the Freedom Trail. Wait, have you ever been to Boston, Blair? Never, no. Okay, so we got it. We got to make this happen. So the Freedom Trail is where we drag all of our out of town guests. Um, it's a two and a half mile long trail. It's sort of, um, you can follow it because it's a red stripe in the sidewalk and in the streets of Boston. Like the yellow brick road there. Like. Yeah, exactly. Um, it starts in the Boston Common, which is really where people would um, graze their cows back in the 1600s. And it ends at the Bunker Hill Monument. And there are 16 stops along the way. You don't have to stop at all of them. But some of the ones that people especially are interested in are the Boston Massacre site on State Street. Um, what happened there was back on March 5th, 1770, which, according to my kids, was just 10 years before I was born. The Bostonians and the British um, clashed in the streets and the Redcoats ended up killing five people, which really upset the, the folks of Boston and rallied them to get rid of the British. So that led to the evacuation of the British troops from Boston, and they did not return for four years later. And then we kind of all learned in school what happened at that point, right? Um, another stop that people really like is the USS Constitution, which you might better know as Old Ironsides. It is not made of iron, um, but it is the, um, let's see, they call themselves the oldest commissioned warship afloat. Wow. But what's fascinating about that, seeing old iron size and seeing the museum, is in the museum, they spent a lot of time trying to convey what life was like for a sailor on old iron sides, you know, in the early 1800s. And let me just say, I'm really glad my sons don't have to sign up to go <laughs> serve on the USS Constitution. So we would definitely do the Freedom Trail. Then I would have to insist on a ferry ride to one of the islands in the Boston Harbor Islands National and State Park, maybe oh. Pettix Island, because that's the biggest. And from there, you would get a view of Deer Island, which is where the Massachusetts Water Resources Authority's Deer Island treatment plant. So it's about a 330 MGD ADF plant. That's where my wastewater goes. Um, and so I maybe we could stop there and get a tour um, of that plant. Okay, then, because I know you like beer, Blair, I would then finish with the Trillium Beer Garden in um, the Greenway in downtown Boston. So the Greenway is this linear pa uh, park in the middle of Boston, um, at, which covers the highway that was put underground as part of the big dig. So we got a beer garden out of it. So it's Thanks. all good. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a... Uh... A great trip, actually. It's got beer. It's got wastewater. It's got old timey warships. It sounds like every. It's the trifecta of greatness, right? There. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it really is. Come on, you gotta, you gotta make it, make a plan to come out here. That would be awesome. I have visited your hometown. That's well, I don't know if I did visit your hometown, but I visited your home state. So 
We got to get you to Massachusetts. All right. I'm going to get on orbits as soon as, uh, as soon as this is over. All right. Well, thanks, uh, Anna, for being on the show. We appreciate your insights, but uh, there's one left, one thing left to uh, take care of. And that's the end of show quiz. Are you ready for the end of show quiz? No. That's okay. No one ever is. No one ever. <laughs> All right. This one, uh, since we're getting into winter, uh, did it, has it snowed there yet? Probably not. No, it has not snowed at our house. It has snowed in uh, central and western Mass, but not oh. not our, not near. We're us. getting snow on the mountains, and uh, one of the ski areas I think is opened. A Basin, which is always the first one to. It was. It's usually the first one in the nation this year. Uh, one of them back east beat it, but uh, it it's opened. To, it's the first in Colorado. So anyway, this is a winter quiz. Uh, so we'll see how you do. Let me get my uh, let me get my dinger so I can ding if you get it right. Hang on. Okay, first question: Which winter sport is known as the Roaring Game? Which winter sport is known as the Roaring Game? I'll give you some uh, options: Is it A. Bobsled, B. Speed skating, C. Curling, or D. Luge? Oh. I'm going to go with Deluge. Deluge. Is that your final answer? <laughs> Should it be? <laughs> yeah, I don't. Yeah, it's my final answer. Oh, I'm sorry. It is curling. Oh. It is curling, I guess. Curling? Wait, why is. I'm sorry. You need to explain why curling is known as a roaring the, sport. The sound that the big rock makes as it oh, okay. the uh, layer of of water on the ice uh, i guess it roars i've never been to a curling match and i've watched them on tv i haven't heard any roaring going on but i guess that's what it said on wikipedia so it must be right okay so it must be right okay mm -hmm. cool all right zero out of one that's all right you can still you can still get the majority of these correct uh number two which state has the most ski areas is it a michigan b colorado c idaho or D, New York. Most I have to go. I have to go with B, Colorado. B, that's what I. This is a trick question. That's what oh, I was thought, but unfortunately. Okay, it, wait. Can I guess again? Can I guess again? Right, go ahead. Uh, I'm gonna get it wrong. It can't be Michigan. Tell me it's not Michigan. So then it's Idaho or New York. I'm gonna have to go with Idaho then. <laughs> I got it wrong again. Did not. I wrong again. It is New York, which surprised me. New York has 52. I guess because all the people are there. There must be tiny little areas, oh. but there's 52 in New York, 32 in Colorado. Uh, Idaho has only 18. Michigan has said 39. Wow, so it's just that we know the ones in Colorado. We've never heard of like. 51 of the ones in New York State. Yeah, it must be little little tiny hills or something. That one surprised <laughs> me too. All right, well, you can still get one right, and that's good enough for this quiz. That's still okay. Number three, Jonathan Winters. I don't know. You know who Jonathan Winters is? Yeah. But, uh, he was a comedian. Jonathan Winters played Mirth, the son of this titular couple, whose orkin physiology causes him to age backward. Who's uh, Who was he the son of? Jonathan Winters. Uh, he aged backwards. Are you giving me options? No, I wasn't going to. <laughs> uh, I wrote this question mostly because I get to say the word titular. Yeah. 
<laughs> that was so I I know what that means. Oh man. I'll tell you, I'll read it again. I'll tell you the answer is partly in the question. Okay. Winters played Mirth, the son of this titular couple whose orkin physiology causes Oh, oh, Mork and Mindy. You got it, Mork and Mindy. <sighs> Gosh, I really appreciate the abundant clues. <laughs> <laughs> you got one out of three, but you got the best one of the bunch. So that's oh, good. <laughs> okay. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for playing. Uh, to our listeners, thanks for listening. And if you have any ideas for upcoming shows or uh, topics you want to hear about, shoot me an email at streamingwateratmail.com. Uh, to our hosts, uh, Rocky Mountain Water Environment Association and the Colorado Wastewater Utility Council. Uh, we thank them for hosting the show and, and participating in the podcast. And uh, we ask listeners, to, if you like the show, if you like what you hear, give us a rating. We don't have that many on, on Apple Podcasts or wherever uh, streaming service you're listening to the show. Give us a rating. Uh, a five-star feedback or or some feedback on the show would be greatly appreciated. So thank you, Dr. Marotra. It was great having you on the show. And uh, I think you provided some great insight on uh, this topic. So thanks for being there today. Hey, thank you for having me. All right. And uh, have a good weekend. We'll see you next time on the Streaming Water Podcast.